Hey everybody. Welcome to another episode of Milk to Meat. Let's dive into God's word. So welcome to Milk to Meat Bible study November 21st. Uh, 2021 a couple more weeks and this year will be over but thank god for his goodness and his grace his mercy and today's session is actually from the book of numbers as we're going through this the study on the context of redemption from numbers chapter 21 to 24 uh today's session is just entitled spared and we'll see how that is relevant in the text itself we'll be looking at numbers chapter 22 today for our for our exposition uh, psalm 34 7 says the angel of the Lord encamps around them that fear him and delivers them or taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And what this establishes is that blessed is the man who actually trusts in the Lord and those who fear the Lord are those who are delivered. And the question is, do we fear the Lord and we do, do we trust in him? Uh, in today's study, actually, we learn from Numbers 22 that the angel of the Lord actually stands in the opposing the way of someone ready to destroy that person. And we will actually learn why and how that person is spared as we go through the account of uh, Balaam in Numbers chapter 22. Uh, we've been studying the threefold cord of scripture, the kingdom cord, the covenant cord, and the salvation cord, you know, and in those contexts about how God's kingdom is there, there's an opposing kingdom that's a satanic false kingdom that has a finite beginning and a finite end, but in the end, how all the kingdoms, kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ is what the Bible teaches us in Revelation. And we see how through that till the time that it actually becomes consummated and real, God is in a covenant relationship with us and a covenant that is everlasting forever that he has established through first the patriarch Abraham and then through Isaac and Jacob. And then we continue to see that through the Davidic line and then the true covenant that comes in, in terms of Christ himself. We've been studying the Mosaic covenant and the law in terms of the law itself, numbers is within that context of the law. So, and then we'll get into the, the, the Davidic covenant in terms of the seed aspect of the covenant of God and then the new covenant in Christ which is life itself by the spirit of God uh, and that actually kind of is brings about the whole aspect of Christ in the scripture and the salvation cord that kind of intertwines between the multiple cords of the covenant and the kingdom as, as we read in from the book of uh, you know from the first letter in Genesis to the very last letter that is jotted down in the book of Revelation given unto us once and for all delivered unto the saints as we read in Jude. Recap from last week is that we were looking at the redemption sign in the context of redemption sign, what's lifted up. We looked at actually Numbers chapter 21, the Canaanite king of Arad came against Israel. Israel then vows to God and says that if you destroy them or Horma, then we will destroy them completely. And God actually gives into that and then they win the war. God does help, but we also learn from scripture that we ought to be very careful with the words we vow unto the Lord, but what is vowed cannot be taken back, but it ought to be paid. Uh, and we saw some examples there in terms of Jephthah and others who rashly vowed and uh, you know they had to be held to it so we have to be very careful in the presence of the Lord that our words be few for God is in heaven and earth is his word stool is what this scripture teaches us we also learned that the circuitous route around Edom makes the people of God the Israelites grumble against God so much so and his servant that God sends venomous snakes to bite them and then the many Israelites were killed then the Israelites repent and they say we have sinned against you and Moses uh, and, and so Moses then makes a, uh, is told by God to make a fiery brazen serpent, raise it up on a pole. And all who are, you know, who are bitten have the choice to either look up to the, the pole and be saved or continue to look at the venom that is, uh, you know, that was in their bloodstream. Uh, but we realize that the venom was in their hearts even before the venom was in their bloodstream. Uh, and those only those who looked up to the raised bronze serpent on the pole actually live is what we see. And then God then takes the Israelites and he gives them victory over King Sion of the Amorites. Um, and then he also then takes them to possess the land and all their cities. And then we looked at King Og of Bashan, who is a giant king, as we read from the scripture in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, and, and, and God actually counsels his people not to fear, even though he was a giant. But then God and, and then God delivers, you know, his people. Um, he gives the 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 king of uh, King Og of Bashan into the hands of the people of Israel, and they possess. It says actually, Bible records sixty cities, and then they kill everyone, as God had said, so that they will have nothing to do with the pagan uh, gods that they would actually be getting into, so that they, they don't become a snare unto unto Israel itself. Um, then Jesus, uh, we, we looked at how this actually typed. You know, it's a sign of. 
like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness in John chapter 3 verse 14 it says so also the son of man should be lifted up and so Jesus who knew no sin was made sin and lifted up on the cross he became the curse itself as the serpent was cursed in the garden so Christ becomes the curse and everyone who fixes his eyes on Jesus by faith believing in him are the only ones who will have who will not be subject to the effect of sin which is death itself but will have a life eternal and then we also learn from scripture in terms of how God is greater than the giants and one need not actually fear the kings and the giants that come after God's people for God the king of kings and the lord of lords goes ahead of his people and delivers them out of all their troubles is what we learned as we look through that the journey of um, of God leading them up towards the promised land so we come to numbers chapter 21 to 24 is that section on redemption 21 talks about the venomous snakes the bronze serpent as a sign the different kings of the land that were defeated the giants of the land that were defeated and then or the giant of the land who led this army was defeated uh, for he was the only one remaining of the giants is what the scripture teaches us and then Numbers chapter 22 actually is what we'll be looking at today in terms of Balak, a king of Moab, summoning Balaam, and then Balaam's donkey and the angel of the Lord, the encounter as to what that happens and what we can learn from it. Numbers chapter 23 to 24 actually talks about Balaam, Balaam's prophecy or oracles, and then we'll actually see how the prophecy of Christ is there in terms of the redemption. Uh, a star will rise up in the east is what it teaches us, pointing to, the Christ, pointing to Christ uh, as the one that we will actually explore as we get into that text itself. So Numbers 21 through 24 as are the redemption aspects that are mentioned in the book of Numbers. 22 is what we will be actually studying and expanding on more um, today. So the outline for the book of Numbers chapter 22 can be broken into two main parts. Balak, the king of Moab, summoning Balaam. And then 22 to 40, uh, 20 verses 20, that's from verses 1 to 21. And then verses 22 to 41, the rest, remaining rest of the chapter is about Balaam's donkey and the angel of the Lord. And so we'll start right from the text, uh, from the word itself, you know, God's word spoken to his people through his servant. So Numbers chapter 22, verse 1 to 4. And the children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab on this side, Jordan, by Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zephor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was so afraid of the people because they were many. They were many. And Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. And Moab said unto the elders of Midian, Now shall this company lick up all that are around about us, as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zephor, was king of the Moabites at this time. Now, what we see over here is that verse 1 actually talks about the children of Israel set forward and pitched themselves in the plains of Moab. What we ought to recognize over here is the direction that was given to the children of Israel. So Moab is over here. And earlier in Numbers chapter 21, we actually saw how Zered was in the border in the south and Arnon was in the north. Sion and, and Og were actually up there in the, in the northern part of Moab. And Sion actually would have been the king who have defeated the previous king of Moab. And now Balak is the king of Moab and he reigns in Moab over here. And God actually is saying that this is the promise land towards the promised land if you look from trajectory they've gone and defeated Og and they've taken all the cities so the Israelites are camped away could camp in all of these cities but instead God actually leads them back into the place of Moab in the plains of Moab and he makes them makes them actually set he sets them forward, even though directionally for us, that would mean he, they were going backward or they were going south. What is important for us to recognize is the direction that the Lord God leads us is the direction that is forward in our lives, even if it means we're going south in certain aspects from a directionality standpoint. But God is the one who leads them is what we see, because in Numbers chapter 10, it says the pillar of the Lord was the one that rested whenever it rested, they camped there. But when it started to move, then the people moved. So God is over here in the midst of the people. He is with them and he makes and puts them actually in a place in the plains of Moab, not in the fortified cities so that he himself can be the defense. And this distresses the king of Moab itself. So first thing for us to recognize is God is leading his people to the place where he needs us to. So in application for us, we may feel like ah, I'm going south or I'm not really feeling like I'm heading towards where I ought to go. Because naturally, if I was 
leading, if I was Moses in that time, what would seem more natural for me is that I would go up to Og over here. Uh, I would go up to uh, Bashan over here where Og ruled, and then around the Jordan get into the uh, into Canaan. But God is bringing them back and putting in a, and puts a water body, in fact, in between the two. So so let's trust in God as He leads us. Number one to take away from that aspect of God setting forward and pitching us in the places in our lives where God wants us to. Then it, interestingly, it says then Balak, the son of Zephor, and Balak actually means in Hebrew, the word devastator or someone who actually destroys or lays, lays waste. And God brings his people so that they can inherit the promised land that he is he's leading them to. And there is somebody who is a destroyer or a devastator that is in their way. And he is now getting destroyed. And he actually makes an interesting declaration. And he says, and he saw all that Israelite, the Israelites that Israel had done to the Amorites. Now, the Amorites were actually the, the king of Shihon, was the king of the Amorites. And he had been defeated because, interestingly, Sihon had defeated the previous king of Moab, as we read in the book of Numbers chapter 21. So Moab is saying, the Israelites defeated a king who defeated my predecessor. So he, they must be much more mightier than they are. But what he failed to recognize, and it's a warning for each one of us also in the victories that we have in the battles of life, is that it was God who was fighting their battles and giving them the victories. So that Moab, the pagan ruler, did not recognize that it was God's hand and he saw the people. But it also, in a sense, is a counsel or a warning for us that we are representing God in this world, in this pagan world. And the explanation that happen because of the power of God should never be attributed to us, even though the pagans may not actually, or the unbelievers may not actually see the power of God or the hand of God, but they may see the power of God manifested through our lives, which only can happen if we are in the camp of God. And so it is important for us to recognize that and also be able to reflect that to the people around us to say, it is not by our power, it is not by might, not by power, but by the spirit of God that battles are won. When and we represent God to the world. So it's a takeaway for us to learn as we look at the scripture over there. And then he goes on to actually make an interesting declaration in verse four, where he says, as the ox licks up the grass of the field, and this is the only place where I saw in the scripture where that phrase is actually being used. And what that actually likens unto is to say, like when a gra when, a, when an animal is, is an, an ox is grazing the field, even though the, the field, even, is, even though the grass is so deeply rooted, and you and I know when we go and try to pull off grass or weeds out of our yards, how difficult because of the, the root system that they have it is for us to pull them out, but it can resist not, you know, the, the, the grazing of the cattle itself. And so he's saying when God's hand is on us, uh, we, we will be a people that will be able to take over things that are rooted so strongly in the world system in terms of application that we can apply to our life, lives, lives as we look at this in terms of the power of God in terms of how he can use us to be able to uproot the things of this world. But it is God who sets forward and he pitches us in the places and in the position as he did the Israelites as they were journeying into the promised land. The next couple of verses are actually interesting verses where it actually talks about in Numbers chapter 22, verse 5, he says, So Balak sent messengers unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pithor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people. If you go back to the map over here and you see, Balak is actually up here in a place called Pithor in, in the Moabi region, and Midian is farther down. So he, he actually sends someone all the way down to Midian, and, and he says, so he actually sent the elders of Moab, and he sends actually the, the, the elders of Midian as well unto this person who was in his land, this, this person called Balaam, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him saying, behold, there is a people come out of Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth and they abide over against me. Come now, therefore, I pray thee, curse me, this people, for there are, they are too mighty for me. Peradventure, I shall prevail that, they, that we may smite them and that I may drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom thou blessed is blessed and he whom thou curseth is cursed. Now, it's interesting in verse 5, it says there is a people that has come out of Egypt. Egypt was a mighty nation at that time, and if the people could come out of the mighty nation itself, then they must be mighty too, is the declaration, is the, it's the inference that Balak is making. And then he makes this reference to saying that they covered the face of the earth. 
a reference that immediately takes us back to, uh, to Exodus chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, where Moses and Aaron actually go to Pharaoh and they say, if you refuse to let my people go, then God is saying that he's going to send locusts and they will cover the face of the earth and devour everything that you have. And the same thing over there is to say that if the locust or the judgment of God comes, then the judgment of God will come, which will devour everything of the land. Nothing will be left you know, for sustenance or for that land itself to be able to be uh, to, to, be, to, to remain. And so over here, Balak is actually referencing the Israelites to be like that, that they are so mighty, they're too mighty for me is what he says, and they're covering the face of the earth, which means I have no chance or no choice to be able to actually protect my land. And so he actually goes to his ways to say, I'm going to call on Balaam. And so he says, for Balaam had seen, you know, how they were mighty. And now he's saying, I'm calling you to come and curse me, this people. Now, the word curse in, in Hebrew is ara. And what that means is to invoke divine harm or evil against someone, which is the exact opposite of the word bless, which is to invoke divine favor on someone. And so here he is saying, I want you to actually call on because Balaam was a diviner and he, was, he practiced divination, as we will see in terms of the text itself, where he's saying, call on every evil power that you can to be able to be against the people of God, because he says that I cannot defeat them or I can't drive them out of the land. And it's very contrary to the very so so he says i so i so so curse them so i'll be able to defeat them and drive them i may be able to smite them and drive them out of the land which is actually contrary to the very thing that god is leading the israelites to saying that i'm going to bring you into the land so it's interesting as we see the word there ara being used against the people of god how that won't stand we'll see as we go through the rest of the scripture as well over here in numbers chapter 22 so and then he says whom thou was blessed you know i'm sure they will be blessed and whom thou was cursed they'll be cursed and this actually goes back to the Abrahamic covenant reference where Genesis chapter 12 verse 3 says, I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse, says the Lord. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. Meaning to say that God was not saying that the Abraham will be the blesser. In fact, Abraham, when he meets Melchizedek, recognizes that the one who was to bless him, you know, Melchizedek, a pre-type of Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, we actually see that he falls down and worships, and then he gives a tithe. And then the Melchizedek, the king of Salem, one who had no beginning or end, as we see in the book of Hebrews, is the one who actually kind of talking about Christ, blesses him, for the greater should bless the, the inferior, or the superior should bless the inferior, or the greater should bless the, the, the lower. And so we see here where... Be Balak is almost positioning Balaam in the position of God to say that if you say so and they will be blessed, they will be blessed. To that point of his confidence in a man is what we see, which was the error of Balak's ways itself. And how God beautifully through this whole account, he will actually make Balaam the instrument that was used to curse the people of God to actually be the one who will end up blessing the people of God as we read the text itself, as we continue to read the text. So Numbers 22, 7 to 14, the next uh, seven verses there, and the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian depart with the rewards of divination in their hand, and they came unto Balaam and spoke unto him the words of Balak. And he said unto them, Lord, hear this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak unto me, and the princes of Moab abode with Balaam. And God came unto Balaam and said, What men are these with thee? Uh, these uh, with thee. And Balaam said unto God, Balak the son of Zephor, king of Moab, has sent unto me, saying, Behold, there's a people come out of Egypt who covers the face of the earth. Come now, curse me them. Peradventure I shall be able to overcome them and drive them out. And God said unto Balaam, Thou shalt not go with them. Thou shalt not curse the people, for they are blessed. And Balaam rose up in the morning and sat, said unto the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Lord refused to give me leave to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose up, and they went into Balak and said, Balaam refused to come with us. What is interesting in this text over here is that Balaam in verse 7 and 8, Balaam is asked by the elders of Moab and of the elders of Midian, actually refers to them as the princes, to come and stay with him, to, to, to go with them to the land of Balak. And it says there over there that, and Balaam said, you stay with me, right? Stay with me for this night. I will go and find the word again, meaning that he probably uh, already had done some uh, divination work for this for Balak. We don't know that. Maybe he was summoned when uh, uh, Sihon, king of the Amorites, came against the previous uh, king. We, 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 the Bible doesn't explicitly record it, but it does say that I will bring unto you the word again. And he says, I will go find out. But what is interesting is verse 9, it says, God came to Balak, where 
God comes even before Balaam comes to God. And then God asks a question, what men are these with you? So did God not know what the men were here for or what they were doing? But God actually in here is teaching a principle, which is very similar to in the Genesis 3 account, where God knew where the women and the man, where the woman and the man was. God knew what they had done. But yet he said, where are you in verse 9 of Genesis 3, 9? Who told you that you were naked? Verse 11. What have you done? Verse 13 of Genesis chapter 3. So God, knowing all things, he yet wants us to admit the fault of our ways to confess so that we recognize the error of our own ways. And we see actually later the error of Balaam was that is how the Bible records what Balaam will end up misleading the Israelites to do eventually when he recognizes that he can't curse the people of God himself, God, because God would not allow that to happen. And so we see here have God is asking you like, yes, we do sin against God, but God is like, where, what, are, what is happening, right? Tell me, talk to me. Uh, he had to ask Jacob, what is your name? And Jacob till then had told that he was Esau. He had deceived his father. And now he had to come in front and he says, I am Jacob. I am a deceiver. Every sinner before Christ has to make that declaration. I am Jacob or I am a sinner. I'm a deceiver. I'm deceived by my own ways. And then God says, you shall no longer be known as Jacob, but you shall be known as Israel, one who struggles or contends with God, meaning that you will have to work with me to be able to walk with me. And that will be a struggle, but I will be with you and I will go with you is what God is teaching us. So over here, he's saying, what men are these with you? And then Balaam actually tells God that yeah, you, I was send, Balak send these men and they come to talk to me and they've asked me to come and curse them so that they may be able to. What Balaam did not do over here was he actually did not say something that was told of him, but he actually in this place did not say that he was asked to bless he, in fact, only says that he was asked to curse. So in sometimes in our response, we may think that we can hide portions of the truth, but it cannot be so. It's something very important for us to make because Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7 is very clear. The inferior is blessed by the superior, undisputably, without contradiction is what it says. And over here, Balak, by not telling God that, you know, I was asked to come and bless the people of Moab, was in fact saying that they've asked me to be their God in a way. Right, So I can actually bless them for only God blesses and no man blesses, but he keeps that from telling that to God. And then God says to Balak, uh, sorry, to Balaam, you shall not go and you shall not curse for the people that you are being called to curse against are my people and they are already blessed is what it says. He doesn't say they will be blessed. He says they are a blessed people and we'll actually see that later how it applies to each one of us. Now, Numbers 22, 15 to 21 says, and Balak sent yet again princes, now much more honorable than the previous batch. And they came to Balaam and said, thus saith Balak, the son of Ziphor, let nothing, I pray you, hinder you from coming to me, for I will promote you with great honor. I will do whatever you say uh, unto me. Come, therefore, I pray, and curse me, this people." And Balaam answered and said unto the servants of Balak, if, if Balak would give me his whole house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. Now, therefore, I pray you, tarry also here this night that I may know what the Lord will say unto me more. And God said, God came unto Balaam that night. Again, God comes to Balaam that night and said unto him, if these men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say unto thee, thou shalt that do. And Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. A second group of emissaries are sent to summon Balak and is promised with great wealth and honor. Balaam metaphorically had a blank check that was given to him saying that write whatever you want on this and I will make it happen for you. And in verse 18, we read, and Balaam answered and said unto them, right, stay over here while I go find out what the Lord will tell me more. God had already told him, you cannot do this. You cannot go. You cannot go and curse. They are already blessed. But Balaam is over here kind of negotiating with God, right? Making what he's going to say even more dangerous when he first recognizes that even if you give me all the silver and gold, I still cannot do something contrary to God. Yet, what he says next makes it so dangerous where he says, now you stay here. What he should have rightfully done is get back to your land. I cannot come and be of service because I'm going to go against the Lord God himself. But instead, he's likening God to be man. 
and like someone who will change his mind. Numbers 23, 19, that's why it says he will realize later when he goes up actually and sees the people of Israel, he'll say, God is not a man that he should lie. Neither is the son of man that he should repent. Hath he not said and shall, what he has said, shall he not do it? Or has he not spoken and shall he not make it good? Balaam by negotiating with God was in essence neglecting God's original command. And sometimes we end up doing that. We're like, God, I really don't like your answer. I don't want to be in the state of suffering. I don't want to be in this position. Let me check with you one more time. Let me check. And we do that. I do that. Let's be very careful that there should be nothing more than what God tells us to. Because by negotiating with him, especially when it is in contrast to what God has told us already, if it's going to be in contrast to the work of the Spirit, if it's going to be contrast to the Scripture's words that are written down, in the things that we want to gratify our own pleasures and our wealth or in our pursuit of wealth, power, honor, or position, all this that was promised to him, that greed of Balaam, the error of Balaam was that he was contrary to God. And so he says, so God actually makes an interesting declaration and says, yeah, if these men come to you, then go with them, but you will do only what I tell them to do. And Balaam rose up and went. So the next verse is actually one of the words that perplexed me quite a bit because Numbers chapter 22, verse 22 to 27, it reads, and the anger is kindled of the Lord. But God's anger was kindled because he went. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. Um, and the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road. Now I use the ESV version because the King James actually keeps referring to it as the donkey as the ass. And given connotations in our cultural context today and being you know, in integrity to word, the word of God, not profaning it in any way. I don't think that really matters in terms of the word that is used, but somebody may have a different connotation to the word that we would think of and say. So I use the word ESV over here, just as a diligent um, uh, student of the word. So and, and ESV, it says it, the, the message is still the same, uh, that he was riding on his donkey and his two servants with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the left or to the right. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam and Balaam's anger was kindled and he struck the donkey with a staff. Interestingly, this section over here, this pericope over here from 22 to 27 of Numbers of the book of Numbers, chapter 22, starts with God's anger being kindled and in the end ends with actually Balaam's anger being kindled. Now God's anger was kindled is what it says. And why, why did God get angry when God told him you could go? It says over here, and God's anger was kindled because he went. Any thoughts? Yeah, my uh, study Bible says uh, God, uh, apparently because God knew that his heart was set on the money in okay. spite of God's strict instructions. Okay, all right. Any other thoughts or study on that? If you go back to the previous verse, it says, and God came to Balaam at night, number 20. If the men come to call thee, rise up and go with them. It actually doesn't say anywhere between that verse and the next verse where the men came. The men were staying over there in the camp. They had come to call him. They had known already previously that he had denied going with them. And so are they going to come back and call him again, right? And Balaam rose up in the morning. On his own volition, he chose to go because, as Brother Charles was saying, was it the greed that was there, as we see later in the book of Jude, but it'll be saying the error of his ways, right? He rose up and saddled his donkey. And the promise of great reward and honor, a blank check reward, because in Jude 1 1, it says, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, murdering and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward. So his heart was like, you know, he, he had already gone, even though physically he was there in, in, in the area of Syria and Midian, he actually had already gone up in his heart. And so God is angry with him. And so the angel of the Lord stands as an adversary. An adversary is somebody who is an enemy of God. In fact, who is the enemy of God? We, say, we read from scripture, one who is lewd and succumbs to the temptation of the enemy. Because it says over here in Christ's temptation itself, it says, all the kingdoms and the glory I will give unto you if you fall 
fall down and worship me. Balaam, who claimed that the Lord was his God in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, was in a sense lured by his greed, was in essence falling down to the, the gods of the wealth and the power and the position. You can take it in that manner to say that he was lured so much to fall down and worship that which was not God. And so he's saying, you know, God stands as an enemy. God also stands as an enemy against anyone who is friends of the world because James chapter 4, verse 4 says, he that is friends of the world is in, in essence enmity of the God, in enmity with God for the things of the world is the things of, that are the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh and the pride of life or the honor of life. The spiritual application for us is are we like Balaam? Are we at times actually going after things that we become making, we become an enemy of God? Or more importantly, is God becoming an enemy because of the ways that we're walking and how we are actually riding on towards getting the things of this world as opposed to you know, as opposed to walking in the way of the Lord and doing what he's asked us to. Other observations I want you to see over here is the donkey runs into a field, he gets beaten. The run donkey runs against a wall, pressing his foot against the wall, against the wall, almost like if you don't walk in God's ways, you can't walk at all, is what he's trying to say. And he gets he gets beaten. The donkey then finally is like, I got nowhere else to go. I'm going to lie down. And he just lays down and he gets beaten. But what's fascinating is in this whole account, three times he gets beaten. And three times before he's beaten, he actually says that the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. It's an evidence, actually, that God's creation sees God and knows him and can recognize the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is actually used as a, as a phrase to represent Christ himself and Christophanic appearances in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And the angel of the Lord, when he appeared to Abraham, when he appeared to Hagar, and, and, and Hagar actually responds back and says, uh, he names that place Bir Laharoi, and where it says, uh, Genesis chapter 13, I believe, is what that, that references, where it says, the Lord who sees me. So if the angel of the Lord is referenced there to Christ, and we see you can make Christ your enemy if we go against, and make him our adversary if we go against the error of our ways, greedily pursuing after the things of this world, which makes us enemies of God, as opposed to be actually pursuing the things that matter, which is the things of the kingdom itself. So 28 to 28 to 35, and the Lord opened the mother donkey and she said to she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, because you made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey or on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is this my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn, drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. It doesn't say, you know, it's very clear over there. God is saying it's a perverted heart, perversion from the within from within you. It's before me. Then donkey saw the donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely just now I would have killed you and I would have let her live. Then the Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with these men, but speak only the words that I tell you. So Balaam went to the princess of Balak. What is interesting over here is that the, the it, Balaam is actually saying that um, the donkey is actually saying the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and the donkey not only can speak, it can count and it can actually say, you struck me three times. And Balaam says, why did you strike me when he asked him the question? Balaam actually responds to the donkey and he says, you know, because you made a fool out of me. He already was a fool to think that God would change his mind or that God would allow him to curse whom God has blessed. And so the donkey didn't have to do anything to make him feel as a fool. But he says that you are the reason for making me look foolish. And then he says, I have, if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you. Then God opens his eyes and he actually sees that the sword is not in his hand, but it's in the hand of God, in the, of the angel of the Lord himself. And then the angel of the Lord is like, I would have killed you if not the donkey had done what it did to be able to spare you. And God is actually asking Balaam the same question that the donkey asked. Why, you know, why did, why did you strike me, strike the donkey three times? And then he says, because your ways are perverse before me, I came to oppose you. And the word perverse over there, some renditions would say reckless, but another rendition would say contrary. It means, the word actually means to turn from the right to that which is bad. It's the immoral and an adulterous kind of lifestyle in terms of our allegiances with the world, in terms of walking in the world, right? And so it's important for us to recognize that God is saying anything outside 
of God's holiness is perverse, perversion. And that's where you are. That's where you're heading as well. And the donkey, in fact, turned aside and then turned, you know, and, 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 and spared you. Then Balaam makes his confession and he says, I have sinned and will turn back. This, the spiritual application of that is that we all deserve death because of our ways are turned from right to wrong and we become enemies of God. And God would be justified if he actually struck us down with his drawn sword. Yet when we confess of our sins and vow to turn back, then God spares us because he already put that justice and, he, and his wrath was actually meted out and appeased by the sacrifice that was made in Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, God himself. So, and it's almost like in this account, um, we would see that, um, you know, the, the story of salvation is there in that account as well, where it says you are spared when you confess of your sins because you believe in the one who actually took your place and your sins on the cross. Uh, and the angel of the Lord said, you will go, but only speak the words that I will tell you. The last section over here is Numbers 22 to 29 to 35. It's actually talking about God. Balak then heard that God, that, uh, God had, um, I'll actually read the verses. And when Balak heard that Balaam was come, he went out to meet him under the city of Moab, which is in the border of Arnon, which is in the utmost coast. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not earnestly send unto you to call you? Wherefore, come and wherefore came you not unto me? Am I not able to indeed promote you to honor? And Balaam said unto Balak, lo, I am come to thee have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth is the one that I shall speak. And Balaam went with Balak and they came to a place called Kirjat Husau. And Balak offered oxen and sheep and sent to Balaam and to the princes that were with them. And it came to pass on the morrow that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal. Of Baal. Then from there he might see the utmost refraction of the people is what it says. These, these verses actually indicate that, you know, whether you're a prophet or a diviner, no one can do anything that is by their own power or do or say anything against God that God does not want you to. So, and in fact, verse 38 is very clear. It says, I can only speak the words that God puts in my mouth. Interestingly, till now, Balaam was trying to put words in God's mouth. And now he recognizes that he can't do it. I, you know, I can't say whatever I please. I must speak only what God, you know, puts in my mouth is what he says. And sometimes aren't we like Balaam, right? Let's recognize that we have no power and we have to only speak with our lips and our lives, more imp most importantly, our lives, the words that God puts in us. And then Balak actually brings him up to high places of Baal to see, for Balaam to see the people that are camped over there, which we'll, which we'll learn more about in the next section as to what Balaam sees. Um, finally, the lesson we can learn from all of this is, is let me actually go back. I think I may have missed a... Um, no, okay, so in the last few verses over there. And then the, the, finally, what we can learn from the lessons that the blessed cannot be cursed. Uh, in fact, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 2 says that in the bird by wandering as a, as a swallow, as a bird by wandering as a swallow by flying, so the curse that is costless shall not come true. And so, first and foremost, God by his word teaches us that the curse has been lifted in Christ. We're not under a curse anymore. And so in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. And Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come, the covenant relationship of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the power of the spirit, the spirit of adoption that takes us from being, you know, rebels and enemies of God to be actually children of God through faith is what the, the scripture teaches us. And then if you are afraid about anything that can come against us in terms of being cursed, we have nothing to fear because by the spirit of adoption, we end up becoming the children of God. And James 1 John 4, 4 says, ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Christ became the curse on the cross so that we cannot be cursed. And by believing in him through faith and declaring him by repenting and, and believing in him, which is expressed by our repentance and turning from our evil ways to turning from our ways that are perverse to the per ways that are perfect and holy before God, by the power of the Holy Spirit that leads us that way, we are actually already blessed in heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus in all spiritual blessings. It's not talking about materialistic blessings, but in everything that is needed for the salvation of the soul, wise unto salvation of our souls is what the scripture has given unto us. In all things, God has already blessed us in Christ Jesus if we are in Christ. It is like this. If God was to see us with his just eyes today, he would see that we are a people deserving death and are perverse in our ways. But if you take yourself and put yourself in Christ, which means Christ is the covering, his robes, his, so he became sin who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he, he who knew no sin was made sin so that we can become the righteousness of God, meaning to say that when God then sees us, he accepts us in the beloved, as we read in the epistles, where it talks about God sees Christ over us. And so he is already taken the curse. He sees the curse that was to be actually meted out against the people because of his just nature. But Christ takes that curse, becomes the curse for us. For cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So it would very clearly you would see it in the book of Galatians. And then the blessing may come to us in blessing you so that you will be a blessing to others and that you will bring others into my kingdom because the blessed cannot be cursed. And there is greater in us. The spirit of God is greater than anyone who is in the world. All the spirits combined, the demonic forces or anything. That's why it's important for us to recognize that this whole concept, unfortunately, in churches, you know, in uh, definitely in settings, even in, in believing communities, we, we kind of hear about we are cursed or we're still under the curse. God has lifted that curse in Christ Jesus. The question is, do you want to be blessed? And if you are, then the important thing is for us to recognize that and to be able to be willing to accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and to declare him to be our Lord. Um, and that is, that's where we, we cannot be cursed because we are blessed is what uh, in, in all spiritual things is what the scripture um, gives us clear cut evidence and, uh, and, and assures us as well. Uh, in summary, Balak, the devastator, summons Balaam to curse the people of God as he's so afraid of them. Balaam refuses to go at the counsel of the Lord God, who says that the people are blessed and cannot be cursed. God's anger is kindled uh, when Balaam goes with the princes of Moab to Balak to curse the people of God. Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a sword drawn in his hand and does not proceed, thereby sparing the life of Balaam. And in, in the, Balaam repents and states that he will turn back uh, but God allows him to proceed to Balaam with the condition that he'll only say what God will allow him to say, will tell him to say. And then Jesus himself was cursed for he was crucified so that we who believe in him will be blessed. Mankind is spared today. Redemption today, we started this topic by saying redemption spared was the topic. Mankind is spared from the curse of the law that leads to death. And all, for all who transgress the law, when one believes in the Lord, it should say, Lord, then that is redemption. Those who believe in Jesus are in God's favor or in blessing and not under any divine evil or under any curse. So the question that I would ask in terms of reflection, and then we'll open it up for a time of discussion and, and comments and feedback uh, is, are you blessed? You know, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, today is your day to be blessed in all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And if you believed, then are you, you're no longer under curse but are you an enemy of God by being becoming friends with the world, succumbing to the temptation of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Think about it, reflect on it, ponder, don't go to sleep without answering these questions tonight, where are we truly blessed? If you're blessed, then are we actually doing living a life that is perverse or contrary? And if so, let us actually repent of our ways, turn back, and say to the Lord, Lord, we are sorry, you know, help us to walk in your way. With that, I'm going to stop and um, open it up for a time of questions, comments, anything as we were reading through the text that jumped out at you that uh, you'd like to share for the edification of each of us. Hey, Manuel, thank you for this excellent study, Manuel. Really thought-provoking. So it's a very familiar text. Uh, many things that kind of came up. Uh, one particular thing I was reminded was... Uh, in terms of God gave us uh, two ears and one mouth. And mm. I was thinking, uh, reading this text, and as you were sharing, how important it is for us to listen more and to speak less. Because uh, here we see that the progression that takes place, the donkey's uh, eyes was always open. Right. The donkey's mouth was opened first. 
But then we see that, uh, you know, Balaam's mouth was always open, but his eyes was open later. Very and much. so I'm, I'm seeing, sitting here as we hear the scriptures asking myself, how much am I listening to God? Whether it is from a donkey, it may be someone who's screaming at us mm. in telling what God wants us to hear. And we oftentimes, though our ears are open, we shut it mm. because we are focusing on things that we want to do. Right. And we see this, uh, you know, really dramatic uh, thing that the, he had beaten the donkey three times. When the donkey was able to see the, uh, the, the uh, not the Christ, but uh, I, I want to use the yeah. right, the, the Lord, right? And uh, the angel of the Lord. Yeah. And we see a parallel, and I was drawn to Peter mm-hmm. denying Jesus three times when he was able to see Jesus right in front of his face. And Jesus even told him, right. Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And... Um, this is the guy who was with Jesus, hung out with him, ate meals with him, went, discipled other people, ministered 5,000, the, the great 5,000, all of this happened. And again, application to myself is I may be in church doing all the right things, saying all the right words, uh, and uh, conferred with big titles. It doesn't matter. Yeah. All that matters is Am I serving God by listening more, speaking less? And what he has opened my eyes as is really, am I really seeing him with my eyes that is already open? So thank you. Beautiful, beautiful parallel in terms of the donkey's eyes being open and then his mouth is open. Um, The Balaam's mouth being always open, but his eyes being shut. And then later God has to open his eyes. A uh, very nice uh, parallel. In fact, in this uh, account, as I was going through the text, uh, I, I realized that um, I'd rather be the donkey than one who is declaring, you know, pro- 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 that one is actually bringing the words of God, uh, if I can see God. And that's why when we started with Psalm 34, it said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience him. Uh, and and like you mentioned, uh, Josh, uh, Two years, one mouth. Uh, and last week when we were studying the text in 21, uh, Numbers 21, we actually hid that text from Ecclesiastes uh, where it talks about, uh, you know, let your words be few. So um, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for that, uh, that observation and the, the sharing. Any other thoughts? Questions, comments? thoughts right uh, what patience god has right mm-hmm. um, an all powerful god uh, who could have struck balaam dead for all the silly things he was doing uh, but how much of refrain and love and patience god showed to balaam uh, that's the lesson that i learned today that i have to show the patience love and refrain sometimes uh, in our anger we do things, but if a God who is uh, the creator of the world can hold himself, how much we should hold ourselves. Very, very nice, Sangeeta, for, for that. Uh, it actually says over here in the text, I surely just now, I would have killed you and let the donkey live. Uh, where, but, but God's patience, we, that, that, that was not, I didn't, thank you for bringing that up because it's implicit in the text that God, and it's beautiful because it says, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. The sword was not sheathed anymore. It was already in terms of having taken, it had been taken out to execute judgment, but God's patience and his love and his mercy you know, comes over here. And then God would actually end up using Balaam who himself to be his mouthpiece. Uh, you know, just amazing. And that's a true application for each one of us that, we have to be patient. I'm guilty of the same as well, that uh, either short-tempered or quickly, quick to speak. Um, but let uh, let us actually, you know, let's see God, the angel of the Lord standing always in front of us, 
not as our adversary, but the one who's actually leading us um, and let us let him fight the battles for us. I have a question. It kind of goes off that last point about how like God is patient. Mm-hmm. Why is God patient only in some situations, whereas others like where like Ananias and Sapphira and like Acts, they lied once and then they immediately got killed. But like this time, Balaam like uh, messed up so many times, but like he was spared and they yeah. were just like, so, so, so the the un, the correct understanding, Ruben, would be God is patient at all times. He doesn't change his mind, and He is constant, and His favor and His love is good. In the account of the Ananias and Sapphira, I've got to go back and read the text more carefully because it was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. But they had been given chances to prove that they had not lied as well. It wasn't that you know is this all that is brought, and they do willfully, volitionally, you know, lie against the Holy Spirit. And so God executes judgment. So is the case with the case of Achan as well, that he, you know, was in the play proximity to the Ark of the Covenant and he struck. So there are certain things that we probably may not be able to question God, but I'll do more study in terms of the text as to, you know, it's not that God has to justify his actions unto us. But as we look through this text and other texts in the scripture, one thing that will start to emerge more and more is the patience of God. That's why it says in the book of Peter, it says, God is not slacking concerning his promise unto man, that, but he is long-suffering towards us, meaning he's patient towards us that no one should perish, but everyone come to repentance. So, so God's patience is um, perpetual, but the limits of his patience depends on not necessarily our action, but still on his sovereignty. On whom he has mercy, he will have mercy. On whom he has compassion, he will have compassion. And God will use all of it to the glory of his name. Uh, but let me do some more research. Others, if you have any thoughts around that, please share as well. But uh, I've got to do the text on the Ananasas of our account uh, to, to answer more, you know, with, with more scriptural integrity. Yeah, I have a couple of thoughts uh, on, on Ruben's question. I think uh, Balaam was a pagan. He was not even part of the chosen people. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira were chosen. They were part of the church. They were born again. And I think God holds born again people to a higher standard than he does pagans. That's a very good uh, yeah. But going back to your text, Mano, two points I quickly wanted to make. Sure. Uh, I was reminded of uh, Paul and his experience on the road to Damascus, uh, where, uh, again, there's an animal involved and he's, his eyes are opened and he sees yeah. the Lord. Beautiful. Uh, I guess there's an animal involved. I, I see paintings with the horse on it. So oh, I guess right. if he's going to Damascus, I assume he's on some kind of a horse. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and the second yeah. thing is, um, you know, at a higher level, all of these things are happening and the Israelites might be clueless about any of this, which is very interesting yes. to me because God works behind the scenes to make things all happen for the good of his people. Uh, whatever the good maybe yeah yeah it's actually beautiful because they have left the land where the israelites are to come down for all this conversation to take place and we'll actually see in numbers chapter 22 to 23 and 24 where the israelites in the camp have no clue like you mentioned so that's a beautiful observation on god opening the eyes of uh, uh, saul to become paul god shut the eyes of saul so that he could come come out with an open eyes as paul is what as you were sharing that i came into because the scales will fall off because his the, the, the scales of his heart had to first be removed before the scales of his eyes and uh, you know and uh, i think um, isn't the yeah so and i think when when he goes to, he's in a place called straight in Jerusalem, when uh, you know when God's uh, servant is sent to him, and then God opens his eyes, so beautiful. But God, yeah, the road to Damascus is another good parallel. Didn't think about that. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, Mano, you got to wrap up. Mano. Yeah, I got to wrap up. If one of you could kindly lead with a word of prayer, I'd appreciate it. So, Josh, if you're unmuted, you just go ahead and read. Father, sure. Thank, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful time of study that you've given to us. We thank you and we pray, Lord, that you will speak to us this morning, O oh Master. Prepare our hearts, and even as Pastor Mono brings his, brings your word, we pray that you will speak to us in a new way and help us to receive and be able to apply in our lives. We love you. We give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 God bless you all. I'll see you in church. Thank you, Brother Mano. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Mano.